Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, it seems like I got into trouble in a housekeeping I did for the Judea Pearl podcast. Uh, I recorded that in the immediate aftermath of the mass shootings in the U.S. in El Paso and Dayton. Many people sent me emails and tweets suggesting that I look at my subreddit, which apparently has been going haywire for quite some time. I think half the people in my subreddit despise me, so it's a perpetual state of war there. But my comments on the mass shootings and white supremacy, white nationalism, racism, etc., seem to have caused people to go fairly berserk there. So I looked into this. I don't usually look at Reddit. I couldn't get very far. I mean, honestly, it was like looking at one's own colonoscopy, if done by a madman. (laughs) It was not a pretty sight. Some people were defending me, so thank you for that. But the subreddit really is bizarre. In any case, it seems like I could clarify a few things, which I will do now. One thing that people seem to have taken issue with and widely misunderstood was my claim that Trump's go-back-to-your-own-countries tweets were not clear signs of his racism. Now, I've, I've long said that I have no doubt that Trump is racist, but I've often said that we have to be precise in making these allegations, right? My problem with the left is that it's finding evidence of racism everywhere, even where it manifestly does not exist. And here was a case in Trump's recent tweets against the so-called squad uh, where it was susceptible to other readings, right? And I thought it was counterproductive to seize upon these tweets as clear signs of his racism and indeed his white supremacy. And to remind you of how overheated this context is, when Nancy Pelosi criticized the squad, she was attacked as dog-whistling to white supremacists which is patently insane. So that's the context. And again, I'm giving Trump the benefit of the doubt here, which I think I should always do because I despise the man. People often accuse me of claiming that I have no biases. That's simply untrue. I have biases, and I try to correct for them. Here's my bias. I find Trump to be one of the most repellent human beings I can think of. That is a significant bias. I should be bending over backwards to give him the benefit of the doubt when there is a doubt. And the left should do likewise, especially if they don't want four more years of Trump in office. So let's go to the tweets. This is what Trump tweeted. So interesting to see, quote, progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came, then come back and show us how? Okay, well, the president is clearly expressing contempt for these four congresswomen and contempt for the countries he imagines they came from. Now, his error here, his main error, is that only one of them is an immigrant, Ilan Omar from Somalia. 
And Somalia is precisely one of those countries that fits Trump's description here. But the fact that Trump was wrong about the other three congresswomen, they're all natural-born U.S. citizens, that is being interpreted as a symptom of his racism, right? Go back to your own countries when, in fact, this is their country. I ascribe this to Trump's ignorance. He couldn't be bothered to figure out who these people were. He might not be able to name all four of them. I bet he knows Ilan Omar. He knows AOC. Does he know Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley? I wouldn't bet on it. It is easy to imagine that he just assumed they were all immigrants or was just speaking about Ilan Omar. Once again, this falls into the evil Chauncey Gardner framing. He is not playing four-dimensional chess. He's not a genius. He is a buffoon. And I'm sure he's also a racist. But again, this isn't clear evidence, in my view, of racism. Had these women come from Ireland, right, at the height of the potato famine, Trump could easily have said, go back to your own starving country and fix that before telling us how to run the greatest nation on earth. And there would have been no implication of racism. And the problem is, the left is as fixated on race as the far right is. And that is not a recipe for good politics. Anyway, that's the basis for my demurral about Trump's tweets. He's an ignoramus and a blowhard and a bully. And sometimes that's the most parsimonious explanation for the chaos he causes. Um, but there was much more on the topic of white supremacy, and it appears to be widely believed that I use a double standard when thinking about white supremacy and jihadism. Okay, well, first, intellectual honesty is really my master variable here. And this might sound fairly preening of me to say, but read my book Lying if you want to understand my view on honesty in general. And uh, this dictates a somewhat unusual way of speaking. And people seem to read into it something sinister when nothing sinister is there. So I'll give you two examples of how this happens routinely. If some terrible person makes a valid point, I'm not going to pretend that he's wrong just because he's a terrible person. A logically or factually or even ethically true statement is no less true if a serial killer or a neo-Nazi or some other repellent person has observed it to be so. So this gets me into trouble occasionally. And there's a related principle here, which is whatever the topic, it could be race, it could be violence, guns, terrorism, immigration, whatever it is, an honest walk through it will flirt with points that support the side you don't like. And in fact, these may be points raised by terrible people to support a position you don't like and may be right not to like. So, for example, this, this is the kind of thing that came up in my recent conversation with Jared Diamond. Right At one point, we were talking about Japan and there was a point I'd heard white supremacists make in defense of their own immigration stance, right? Which is to say they, they want no immigration, they want to live in a white ethno state, 
And then when right-thinking people attack this as a symptom of pure evil, the white supremacist might say, well, what about Japan? Right? Japan has the same policy. The Japanese want to keep Japan for the Japanese. They don't want any pink-skinned barbarians living among them. Right? Why isn't that a racist policy? Now, that's actually an interesting point. So this is something I brought up with Jared, just to talk about Japan, because it's interesting, right? So what about Japan? Why aren't we viewing this policy as shocking evidence of a racist worldview or something, if not racism, something? You know, I'm happy to take that point from Hitler himself, if it's interesting. The source simply doesn't matter. Anyway, this seems to be the kind of thing that can make people think that the mask is slipping, right? Or that I'm dog whistling in some way to extremists. Or that I have a secret affinity for white supremacists or racists or whoever. So let's talk about white supremacy and jihadism and how I have spoken about each in the past. Just so there's no confusion here, I'll make a few declarative statements. White supremacy is a real phenomenon. It is an ideology, and it is a source of violence. No question about that. The question is, how big a problem is it? How well subscribed is it? What exactly do white supremacists believe Why do they believe it? What do they want to do? What are they likely to be able to do? And compare that to the same set of questions for jihadists. If there's an apparent double standard in how I relate to these two phenomena, it's the result of my giving different answers to those questions. So to make it even more precise, what percent of white people, however we define that group are white supremacists or are fond of white supremacist organizations if they're not members themselves or would support them and who either publicly or privately celebrate their violence. Right? So you hear that some white supremacist went into a mosque or a synagogue or a school and killed 20 people and left some manifesto online, what percent of white people in the U.S., say, recognize that to be a valid expression of an ideology that they support? To pick a concentric circle further out than that, what percent of white people are just not quite sure how they feel about it? They're kind of open-minded. You know, maybe that school did have to be shot up, right? Maybe those Jews in that synagogue said something that warranted their murder. How many people fall into that category? And conversely, we should ask all these questions about jihadism, jihadist terrorism, and the full set of the world's Muslims, right? Now, I don't know the precise answers to these questions, but we have enough data to suggest that they're different. And I'll talk about why I think that is. but. If you detect in me a different attitude toward these two phenomena, this is one reason why, right? I think 
that support for jihadism is far more common. There's a, there's a far greater percentage of the world's Muslims who acknowledge jihadism as legitimate, the killing of apostates and blasphemers, committing murder in defense of the faith as legitimate. And that's not an accident. Now, what that percentage is, again, I can't give you an exact number, but it's not 1%. It's not 2%. It's a far more disconcerting number than that. But if it were only 10% of the world's Muslims that had a soft spot for jihadism, that would be an enormous problem worth thinking about. That's a civilizational problem. That's a problem that probably exists in half the world's countries, if not more. What percentage of white people, again, I don't know how you define that, but anyone who could conceivably be a white supremacist, what percentage of white people have a soft spot for white supremacy? To be clear, this is not the same thing as asking what percentage of white people are a little racist, right? That's different, right? There are people who recognize in themselves racial bias who are absolutely appalled by ideological racism. Just as there are Muslims who take Islam seriously who are appalled by jihadism, right? And appalled by a group like ISIS. Certainly that's got to be a majority of Muslims. Otherwise, the game would be over. So what percentage of white people in the U.S. do you think, sort of like the neo-Nazis, the KKK, or other white supremacist groups, or are poised to join them? Again, I don't know the data on this. I don't know that we can trust the data on this. It's unfortunate that some of the groups whose job it is to give us data of this sort have now proven themselves to be totally unreliable. The Southern Poverty Law Center has just immolated itself by more or less calling everyone in sight a neo-Nazi. As you might remember, they called my friend Majid Nawaz an anti-Muslim extremist. He's, in fact, a Muslim reformer. They had to pay him over $3 million for that defamation. They've gone nuts over there, and yet they're still assumed to be reliable brokers of information on white nationalism and Christian identitarian extremism in the U.S. Unfortunately, they're not, and um, that's a loss for all of us. In any case, what do you think the number is? Whatever you think it is will dictate how big a problem you consider white supremacy to be in the U.S. Now, I will grant you, we are just one large incident away from being convinced that white supremacy is a major problem. If we had another bombing the size of Oklahoma City now in the current environment, there's no question white supremacy would be our foremost concern, at least for a while. And that's regardless of how many people we think are actually involved in it. But it's an empirical question to determine how many people are sympathetic with this ideology. So let me first admit that I could be wrong about this, right? My intuitions could be wrong. My reading of the news could be biased. But I believe that while it's scary, white supremacy is still the fringe of the fringe in the United States. And this is not to deny how Trump has given comfort to racists everywhere. This is not to deny how this could 
become suddenly a much bigger problem in the future? Let's just get our bearings here for a second. I'm accused of being a white supremacist, right? Or of dog whistling to white supremacists. That's the level of the criticism here. Or not being worried about white supremacy because I'm a racist who sort of agrees with their whole program. Well, first of all, I'm Jewish, right? And I've received death threats from white supremacists. Okay, so take that data point into consideration for a moment. So the idea that I'm constitutionally disinclined to worry about white supremacy is fairly crazy. And given my understanding of recent world history and events like the Holocaust, I have no doubt that white supremacy should be taken at its word ultimately. There are real eliminationist white supremacists spread throughout the world. The question is, how many of them are there? And how likely are they to be able to do what they want to do? And my reading of the current moment is that there are not so many of them, and they're not very likely to do what they want to do. And most important, their ideology is not deeply attractive to a much wider subset of humanity, and it's not likely to be. Again, this is an empirical question, and things could change. Here's what you would have to do to the ideology of white supremacy to make it truly analogous to the problem of jihadism. Again, as I perceive it, I could be wrong. But in order to understand how my double standard here is not an expression of my own fondness for white supremacy, you need only track these differences as I see them. In order to make white supremacy like jihadism, you'd have to do a few things. First, you would have to make it a religion, a real religion, not just like a religion. You would have to make it a doctrine set among other doctrines that promised its adherents everything they could possibly want in the next life. You would have to make it a doctrine that diminished the significance of this life in favor for an eternity in paradise. You'd have to give it a doctrine of martyrdom, not fake martyrdom, not they'll talk about you after you're gone martyrdom, but real martyrdom. That is the expectation on the part of rational people that they're going to get into paradise after they die for being white supremacists, for killing Jews or black people based on their white supremacy. And this couldn't just be some weird little cult. This would have to be the doctrine of a mainstream religion so that it would be tacitly supported or at least benignly ignored by hundreds of millions of people who were emotionally attached to the other doctrines of which it is part and parcel, right? Now, you sort of have this with the anti-Semitic component of white supremacy, because that's in the Bible, right? You can find the places in the Bible where the Jews are called the spawn of Satan, where they killed Jesus. Let's leave aside the fact that Jesus and the Virgin Mary and all the apostles were also Jews, right? But the Jews killed Jesus, and they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our descendants. 
anti-Semitism is absolutely justified in the Bible. And that has been a problem for the Jews for 2,000 years. You can get a little bit of white-black racism out of the Bible, and the slaveholders in the U.S. had their reading that seemed to justify slavery, certainly justified the institution of slavery. But the truth is there's, there's not much there. So what you'd have to have is a whole doctrine around white superiority. You'd have to spell it all out in the words of God, right? This would have to be God talking, and this would have to be believed by hundreds of millions of people. You'd need this background condition of hundreds of millions of basically good people, you know, who are not spending a lot of their time being white supremacists and racists and anti-Semites, but who really can't find much to say in dispute over the canonicity of these doctrines, right? When you say, well, what about the line here that says that the mud people should be destroyed? They say, well, yeah, I mean, that, that is God, but you got to understand that that was spoken in the context of the time. You know, the black people were getting really uppity then. And so, yeah, they did have to be killed. But in the current age, no, we, we're far more tolerant than that. So they would have these mealy-mouthed, scripturally unfounded ways of pirouetting around what is plainly in the text. So we would need to be in a condition where neo-Nazi skinhead lunatics were offering utterly clear and compelling and plausible readings of a scripture that more than a billion people considered the word of God. And they would have to be clearly motivated by that and recruiting on that basis. And then you'd have to see fairly sophisticated people with lots of educational and economic opportunity converted to that worldview on the basis of their heartfelt spiritual and religious concerns. You'd have to see people dropping out of medical school or having gone to medical school. You'd have to see a pediatrician waking up one morning deciding, you know, I really need to become a white supremacist because if I'm going to be honest with myself, that's what God wants and that's the only way to ensure eternal life for me and my family. You'd have to see people go down that crazy rabbit hole based on religious conviction. So maybe there's a few people like that who become neo-Nazi skinheads, but there's not a lot. Are we seeing engineers and architects and well-educated people become neo-Nazis? Again, not impossible, but that does not appear to me to be what's happening in the United States. So you'd have to change a lot about the doctrine and its integration into a larger set of doctrines to make white supremacy seem as scary as jihadism. And then you'd have to create a larger pool of potential recruits. Again, none of this is to discount the horror of each one of these shootings, and none of this discounts the possibility that white supremacy could be a much bigger problem in the future. The people who quote FBI data and say that white supremacy is a greater threat to Americans than jihadist terrorism because more people have been killed by white supremacist terrorism than jihadist terrorism in recent years, well, okay, that's fine. It's a little fishy that they always start counting after September 11th 
right, in order to make the numbers work. But let's just grant that the odds that you'll be killed by a terrorist in the United States are very low. And counting after September 11th, there have been more white supremacist attacks. If there is a new attack by jihadists that is orders of magnitude greater than anything a white supremacist has done, how are we going to start counting again after that? I'm going to jump over that and then start counting the small attacks? I would not put it past the left to do that. In any case, there's a difference between the aspiration of jihadists and the aspiration, as I understand it, of white supremacists. Are white supremacists looking to get nuclear weapons so that they can detonate them in major cities? If they are, that's terrifying, but that somehow doesn't seem likely. This is something that jihadists will be desperate to do if they can only do it. There's a different logic here. Jihadists will be quite happy to ruin the world for everyone, even themselves. White supremacists, if they could get what they want, want to live in a white ethnostate and keep everyone else out. Maybe they want to go as far as Hitler and create a thousand-year Reich conquering other countries. Those are loathsome aspirations. Still a different logic. They're differently deterrable. White supremacists, generally speaking, don't believe that death in defense of their faith is the highest possible goal, right? They don't say things like, we love death more than black people or Jews love life. They don't love death more than everyone else loves life. The real jihadists do. It's an enormous difference. These are not comparable groups of people. Now, there are some white supremacists, or quasi-white supremacists, who do appear suicidal, and who, who certainly conduct attacks that they seem to expect to die in the process of committing. And uh, this brings me to some remarks that seem to have been misunderstood. When I talked about this in my prior housekeeping, I was trying to delineate different sources of violence. There can be superficially identical types of violence that come about for very different reasons, right? A person can be crazy, a person can be evil, and then a sane and even good person can be ruled by a terrible ideology, like jihadism or white supremacy, right? So the question is, is the person just crazy? Are they a bad person who would do bad things anyway, and they're just using an ideology as a pretext? Or are they a sane and otherwise decent person who's just a true believer, right? And the beliefs themselves are the problem. Clearly, there are cases where people are a mixture of all three of these things. You can be a little bit crazy, you can be a little bit evil, and you can be convinced of certain bad ideas. Now, given what I believe to be the differences between jihadism and white supremacy as doctrines, and the differences between the cultures surrounding these doctrines, the differences between the, the standing of these doctrines in the background culture of each group. I believe the percentages of people in each category who join those groups will be very different. Again, this is an empirical question. I could be wrong about this. But the fact that I believe that this difference exists explains why I treat these phenomena differently. 
And then the thing I said that got me into trouble in this housekeeping surrounds the, the gamification and trolling component of some of these recent attacks. We had the fact that Brenton Tarrant, I believe his name was, the Christchurch shooter, live-streamed his attack from a helmet cam to make it look like a, a first-person shooter game. And he had a, a soundtrack playlist for his killing spree for his viewers. And I believe the El Paso shooter also had a playlist. And again, when I spoke about this before and in speaking about it now, I, I do not consider myself sufficiently well-informed to have a strong opinion about this. So when I, when I spoke about this in my housekeeping, I was saying, this might be so, this, it seems that this is the case in certain cases. I mean, I was, it was, I was super provisional in what I was saying, and please hear what I'm saying now in that spirit. This is not totally understood, right? Who is a real white supremacist? And who is a lunatic who is trolling? There are suicidal, psychopathic, incel nutcases spending all their time on 4chan and 8chan hoping to kill people. So where does that psychopathology and utter wastage of a human mind become real ideological white supremacy? And what is a manifesto that attests to one and not the other? It's just an open question in certain cases. And I honestly don't know enough about the Christchurch case to know what is what. But the reason why I'm provisional about this is, I mean, this is the kind of thing, I just read this in Wired magazine, this is the kind of thing that scholars working in the area are apt to say at the moment. And now I'm quoting, Those manifestos are specifically designed to be objects of media manipulation, says Whitney Phillips who researches troll culture and online extremism at Syracuse University. They're written and publicized in a way to generate the maximum amount of journalistic coverage. Do we really need to break down the specifics of the manifesto to understand the action was motivated by violent hatred? Phillips asks. If you quote the manifesto verbatim, that's going to frame the conversation in their terms. It's going to go along with their game. They become the center of the universe, and everyone else revolves around them. It's not a good-faith document. It isn't information that is sincerely offered. It is manipulation that is deliberately forwarded in the hopes that journalists will report it verbatim, will dissect it for days and weeks and months and years, says Phillips. There's an awareness of the audience, and that should make us very, very suspicious of anything that's in those documents. Okay, so this is what scholars of this phenomenon are saying when interviewed, right? Again, to take the other side, I do not doubt that there have been some jihadists who were purely mentally ill or purely suicidal or pure psychopaths and may have approached their jihadism in precisely the way that Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, the Columbine killers, approached killing their fellow students, right? Just pure nihilism. Now, it's instructive that Klebold and Harris are often talked about in these white supremacist contexts, right? This troll culture around attacks like Christchurch and El Paso. Now, Eric Harris, I think in his journals, went on and on about his own white supremacy, but there are very few people who seriously think that Columbine was a white supremacist terrorist atrocity. Eric Harris was a seriously disturbed young man. 
as far as I understand, the fact that he was into white supremacy wasn't especially relevant to what he did. So I honestly don't know what is the case with some of these specific attacks. And I believe the Dayton case is now seemingly a leftist attacker, right? Not a white supremacist at all. Anyway, the point is, there's a general difference between the status of jihadism in our world and the status of white supremacy and its direct linkage to this kind of violence. It doesn't mean white supremacy isn't a problem. doesn't mean it couldn't become a massive problem in the future. doesn't mean it couldn't eclipse all other problems. This podcast might become almost entirely focused on the problem of white supremacy at some point in the future. But there's a difference between the two that seems important to me now, and it's that perception of difference that determines how I speak about these things. Actually, there, there's a related question here. I was going to do an AMA, and I have had a bunch of questions come in, but this has subsumed that. Uh, but there's a question that's come in in many forms uh, that can be distilled down to this. Why do you spend so much time banging on about problems on the extreme left, wokeness, social justice warriors, identity politics, etc., when there are much bigger problems to solve? For example, climate change. Well, all of these problems are connected. The fact that the left has become terrifyingly irrational is empowering the right. I mean, if, if all you care about is something like climate change, you have to recognize that Trump is one of the greatest obstacles to our developing a sane policy on climate change. I mean, he's dismantled the EPA, and he thinks, or claims to think, that climate change is a Chinese hoax. So, if you care about climate change, getting a new president is the first order of business as an American. And almost anything else you might care about falls under this same analysis. I mean, do you care about human rights globally? Do you care that for all our flaws and occasional hypocrisy, America was once a country that could credibly denounce dictators? Under Trump, the very idea of America has disintegrated. Really, this is not too strong a statement. Under Trump, what does America stand for? Pure selfishness and greed. We now have a government that is totally stripped of idealism, or even ideas. It is government as brute fact. And Trump has accomplished this as fully as if we had elected a rhinoceros to the Oval Office. What if we had elected a rhinoceros president? What message would that send to the world, apart from announcing our collective insanity and masochism? It would send a message. It would tell the rest of humanity that anything you could conceivably care about that requires collective deliberation and cooperation and compromise means nothing to us. Any global challenge that requires diplomacy and ideas, climate change among a dozen other pressing concerns, all of that means nothing to us. And if you don't like it, talk to the rhino. And the fact that half of the country doesn't see this, or seeing it doesn't care, or worse, exults in it, 
That is what has become so toxic about the last few years. It is not merely that we separate kids from their parents at the border and put them in cages. That's bad enough. Is that we no longer stand for a system of values for which that unconscionable behavior is a contradiction. It's like, yeah, we put kids in cages. Oh, you don't like it? Talk to the rhino. And of course, the same thing applies on the matter of race and racism and white supremacy. I mean, yes, the fact that we have emboldened white supremacists who show up with tiki torches in Charlottesville and a counter-demonstrator gets murdered in the process, that's awful. But what's doubly toxic is that we now no longer have a government that can credibly condemn this behavior. We have a man who visibly lacks a conscience in everything he does running the country. And it is sickening. But in response to that, we have a left that is filled with liars and dupes. And that is also sickening. We have a left that will say that the president never condemned white supremacy and that he talked about good people on both sides, where when you actually watch the video, he did condemn white supremacy. And his good people on both sides comment, while it is endlessly recycled in the media at the highest level on CNN, in the New York Times, from the mouths of the current Democratic candidates for the presidency, with a modicum of charity or just basic grammar, you can see that he was referring to not white supremacists, but other people who were at those demonstrations, people who didn't want the statues in Charlottesville torn down. Now, whatever you may think of those people, they were not the same people who were chanting, Jews will not replace us. If you watch the full video, Trump condemned white supremacy. Not especially credibly, because again, this guy is so hollowed out by his own narcissism that he can't do anything like that credibly. But the fact that the left will lie about what he said, again, in places like the New York Times, that's a disaster that makes his reelection far more likely. Obviously, the derangement of the left in the face of Trump is totally understandable, but it produces its own effects that are nearly as negative. If you go far enough left, you meet people who believe that there are no differences between men and women, apart from the fact that all men are basically rapists, and that, of course, everyone's a racist, but paradoxically, race is the most important thing in the world, and that preventing people from even speaking about ideas that make the left uncomfortable is a new intellectual and moral norm that should govern academia and journalism and politics. And the effect of this is much worse than most liberals seem to understand. This isn't a matter of a few people or even a few thousand people with green hair on college campuses. But even if you want to dispute that, even if you think the free speech concerns that I raise on this podcast so frequently are exaggerated, the effect of all this significantly increases the chance that Trump will get reelected. The fact that Trump can successfully conflate the Democratic Party with the extreme left, with the most woke, with examples of stupidity at its most invincible, 
Would the people who, when they find out that the Jussie Smollett hate crime hoax was a hoax, don't care because it's evocative of a deeper truth? The dishonesty and the moral panic coming from the far left is a problem for so many reasons, but chief among them is that it seems likely to guarantee us four more years of Trump. And that's one of the main reasons I keep hitting it on this podcast, to the apparent dismay of so many of my fellow liberals. Well, I'm not sure that was fun, but it seemed necessary. For whatever it was worth, those are my thoughts. Until next time. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.